It's Sarah Baldwin, your host of Electrify This, a new podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a viable path to decarbonize and revitalize our economy. Each month, I'll connect with experts to explore the policy, regulatory, and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. Today's episode, plugging in to the electrification movement. Across the world, governments, businesses, and individuals are taking actions to phase out fossil fuels and reduce greenhouse gases economy-wide in order to prevent the worst impacts of climate change. Electrification refers to replacing technologies and systems that still run on fossil fuels, such as gas and oil, with alternatives that run on clean electricity, like electric vehicles and heat pumps. Since we have the technologies and the capabilities to run the electricity grid on carbon-free resources— Electrifying everything is a way to leverage our increasingly clean grid to drive deep emissions reductions across every sector of the economy. While the strategy is relatively straightforward, its implementation is far more complex. Policies, regulations, and practices must evolve to enable widespread electrification. Consumers must adopt these new technologies, and decision makers must consider the equity and economic impacts of the transition to ensure the movement to electrify is equitable and affordable for all. With me today to discuss these issues are three esteemed guests and colleagues. First, we have Rose McKinney-James, Managing Principal and Founder of Energy Works LLC and McKinney-James and & Associates, and also a former Utility Regulatory Commissioner with the Nevada Public Service Commission. Described as a trailblazer and a change agent, Rose has led an impressive career spanning public service, business, and nonprofits, and is the recipient of many awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Women's Chamber of Commerce. Rose, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sarah. Delighted to be with you. Great to have you. I'm also joined by Sue Gander, Managing Director of Electric Vehicle Policy for the Electrification Coalition, where she leads the policy work to accelerate the adoption of plug-in electric vehicles across the country. Sue has also held leadership posts with the National Governors Association, the U.S. EPA, and the Center for Clean Air Policy. And Sue is a former guest on my last podcast, Grid Geeks. Sue, welcome. Thanks, Sarah. Um, Great to be with you on this new podcast as well. I'm glad to have you back. And finally, but certainly not least, we have Mike Henshin, a principal with the nonprofit organization Rocky Mountain Institute, where he works to decarbonize U.S. buildings through electrification. Mike also works on innovative customer programs and changing utility business models and formerly worked for McKinsey & Company, and he also served as an officer in the U.S. Army. Welk- welcome to the show, Mike, and thank you for your service. Thanks, Sarah. I'm excited to be here and help you launch this podcast. Well, I am really honored to have you all here today and very excited to dive in. So, Rose, I'll start with you. You wear a lot of hats, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about what you're working on these days and what big electrification trends you're seeing right now that are exciting. Well, again, Sarah, excited to be here for your uh, launch and to have an opportunity to chat a little bit about what has been a fairly lengthy career uh, with an emphasis on advocacy, uh, beginning with clean energy and solar and transitioning into energy efficiency and sustainability. So my focus has been on looking for policy solutions 
Uh, I've worked uh, for many years in the legislative and regulatory arenas, as you mentioned, a former utility commissioner. And I think that there are a number of opportunities that are now uh, inherent in this conversation uh, overall around electrification. Uh, what I see are uh, decision makers, legislators, local government leaders now all leaning into the importance of finding uh, a way to frame and support uh, efforts to make their communities cleaner and by so doing making them safer, by finding opportunities to look at economic development and job creation. All of these opportunities, I think, are embedded uh, in a uh, solid and uh, diversified electrification effort. So I see uh, trends that are, in my view, very positive. They build upon the work that's been undertaken over the years, and I think they also provide uh, great hope for our ability to address the urgency of the larger climate question that we are all attempting to address. That's great. And and as someone with uh, such a rich background in both the legislative and regulatory worlds, having served as a commissioner and also having worked for legislators and local governments, I wonder if you can expand a little bit on some of the key issues you think the state policymakers are really grappling with as they face particularly the shift to electrify transportation and buildings as well as industry. Uh, it's It's no small feat and there's a lot being thrown at them. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on on how they're responding. Well, I agree. It is it is a a challenge uh, for organizations that are structured in a way not to be particularly nimble to begin to figure out the best way to approach uh, how they fit into the equation. So, in particular, as they as they determine how to allocate their resources, they make decisions on the next procurement of their, their fleets, uh, their next decisions on uh, areas around uh, building codes and uh, other regulatory regimes that they're accustomed to, they're beginning, I think, to see an increased interest uh, on behalf of their stakeholders, uh, whether or not we're talking about um, uh, particular community organizations, communities in particular that have uh, been left out of the conversation over a period of time. Uh, this gives them um, a bit of an opportunity to revisit and recalibrate how they approach the work. But um, finding uh, customers and consumers who are willing to make significant changes in their behaviors, in the way they approach uh, their purchasing, uh, in the way that they look at uh, the, their comfort, uh, as you, you mentioned, part of this transition requires us to move away from, from gas. Uh, regulators, I think, are struggling with the best way to achieve that, given investments that have been made over time. So I think to your point, uh, these are significant challenges that are going to require a variety of stakeholders, I think, to really lean in, to share their expertise, and help provide many of the uh, policymakers with the options that uh, make the most sense for their jurisdictions, understanding that there is no one size fits all, but there ought to be a movement toward the type of change 
that I think is going to be required for us to to really see um, any deep um, support for overall electrification. That's great. And I think we're going to dig in a little bit more with both Sue and Mike on some of those regulatory and, and also legislative challenges. My last question to you for this first round is, uh, in your consulting business, I know you work with a number of diverse entities, including utilities and businesses, large and small. Curious if any of those folks you're working with are looking at electrification and exploring possible pathways to decarbonize their operations with a shift to clean electricity. Well, you know, I have a, a fairly diverse clientele within my consulting practice. They uh, uh, typically are focused on energy policy and uh, sort of depends on, you know, their level of commitment and the nature of the industry. But I'm really pleased to say that they are all exploring opportunities uh, to determine how best to, to weigh in in, in this area. Uh, we have some who are active in the uh, EV charging arena, looking to help figure out that infrastructure. Uh, the governor of Nevada, Governor Sisolak, has established a, an effort to expand an electric highway, and there uh, are a number of opportunities to participate there. Some of it, I have to say, is somewhat experimental. We're all trying to figure it out and trying to determine how best to um, collaborate with others. I have clients who are, are looking to make significant investments in fleet conversions, and then I also have clients who are using their current commitment to uh, clean energy to uh, provide additional savings for their operations so that they can explore where they might find uh, the best chance for them to participate in an electrification uh, initiative. Wonderful. Well, it's great to see and hear that there is movement afoot at the ground level, so to speak. And um, I, I want to dig in a little bit more on some of the transportation electrification trends. And I'm actually going to switch to Sue to have her elaborate on some of the work that the Electrification Coalition is doing, and in particular, what the transportation sector goals are. Sure. Thanks, Sarah. And uh, just building upon what Rose was speaking to, uh, I'll just take a step back. You mentioned our goal for the Electrification Coalition. It is to bring EVs to scale um, across the country. And our motivation uh, stems from our oil dependency and national security and energy security issues. Uh, folks may be aware that 92% of our transportation sector is dependent on oil. Uh, and we spend somewhere around $80 billion a year to defend um, and protect, um, you know, that industry. And um, we know that electrification is a great option. Um, we're seeing it take off um, certainly in the light-duty sector and increasingly so in the medium and heavy-duty sector. Um, and it's for a lot of the reasons that you heard Rose speak to. Um, it's a great technology. Um, there's some great economic development opportunities, both directly in terms of manufacturing and jobs, um, as well as indirectly due to the cost savings. Um, there's amazing um, emissions reductions, both from a climate change perspective as well as from a public health um, air quality perspective. And, and some of those are really important um, in areas that have been traditionally underserved and, and um, really helps us get at and, and address some of our inequities um, 
um, that have been, you know, been in place for many, many years in part because of um, some of the transportation network um, systems that we have in place. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, our, our goal is really, you know, that, that huge goal, um, we're putting it in place at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level, uh, really keen on um, helping move forward um, uh, both deployment on the ground. We've been working with uh, mayors across the country to help them purchase vehicles for their fleets uh, through a bulk purchasing agreement we have uh, with the Climate Mayors um, Program. We have been working with the American Cities Climate Challenge Program to help uh, build out transportation electrification plans and and help move forward um, at the local level. Um, at the state level, just seeing tremendous effort there. We can go into more detail, um, certainly um, around what we're seeing come out, coming out of California and many other um, states following suit. Um, and I, I think, um, you know, some, some opportunities that we can speak to as well later at, at the federal level, um, you know, it's going to still be challenging um, uh, in, in the coming years, but some, some opportunities. And, and I'd say a really important motivation um, around all of this um, is keeping the U.S. Uh, in a leadership role in terms of the auto industry. Um, we, we posit electrification as the future a big part of the future of the industry. Uh, we want to make sure that the U.S. is a part of that, um, particularly keeping in mind that um, there is a growing industry um, in China and um, um, a, a huge threat from that in terms of manufacturing of the vehicles, but but moreover the batteries and the um, the components and the battery supply chain. So that's something that that kind of motivates us and, and keeps us moving. Um, but we're really optimistic about what we're seeing coming out of the industry and, um, and uh, where consumers are, are going as well. That's great. And yeah, very exciting stuff happening all over the country as well as internationally. Um, yeah, I'd love for you to elaborate more on some of the state-level trends that you're seeing and some of the leadership uh, in California and other places that are really taking the transportation bull by the horns, so to speak, to really drive aggressive electrification and decarbonization? Sure. Well, um, I, I'll point to one of the most recent actions that involved multiple states, because um, I think that's really important, interesting place to start. And, and that was a multi-state uh, MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, that was signed by 15 states and D.C., to support the movement towards zero emission vehicle uh, trucks and buses, medium and heavy duty um, sector. Um, it sets a, a target that those states are going to strive towards um, of 100% of sales by 2050. Um, and um, that is just really a significant uh, move. It, it shows um, you know, a large number of states interested in that sector. And I just think it shows and speaks to the potential within that sector in particular. Um, that's responsible for a pretty large segment of um, of emissions um, and um, a really great opportunity. So we're definitely keeping an eye on that. We've been working closely with a few of the states that are uh, participants in that uh, in that effort. And it it comes on the heels of a regulatory action. Um, that itself is an MOU that set goals. Just to be clear, that's a that's an ambitious sort of target setting exercise. It, it um, covers, um, as I said, a large large number of states that actually represent a large um, percentage of, of, of uh, freight traffic um, across the country. But it falls on the heels of an action that, um, that California um, has taken um, around an advanced clean truck rule. And that is a regulatory uh, measure that they've put in place. 
um, to set up a schedule, essentially, um, to move the sector uh, within that state um, towards zero emission vehicles. So this would be plug-in hybrids, um, uh, battery electric hybrids, as well as um, hydrogen vehicles as well, that they have that full suite. Um, and they've set up, again, um, uh, goals um, going out through 2035 and beyond um, to move um, to move trucks towards um, towards a, a cleaner future. And um, that's um, definitely something that uh, those states within that MOU and then other states as well are taking a look at and thinking about um, if that's something they can also take on as well. Um, and I think there's uh, a lot of excitement around that. Um, not to take away from the light duty sector, we see 52 models currently available in, in the U.S., um, another 30 or so um, on track for next year. Uh, total cost of ownership of those vehicles uh, really uh, declined significantly in the most recent um, report coming out of um, Consumer Reports, actually, and I think this was based on some DOE studies, um, is that um, for a typical driver, uh, owning an electric vehicle um, can save them 6000 to $10,000 over the life of the vehicle um, compared to owning a comparable gas-powered vehicle. So the, the numbers are there. Um, the models are there. Um, there's some, you know, supportive policy in place, um, that there needs to be more, but, um, I think it's, um, really, uh, trending towards greater and greater adoption. I think getting the word out about, um, how great these vehicles are and what they can do, not only for pocketbooks and national security and energy security, but for, you know, for public health, mm -hmm. um, and for the environment. Um, I think those all combined are, are really going to move us forward, um, in the next couple of years. Great. Well, yes, a ton happening and certainly California leading the way, but uh, great to hear about that multi-state MOU and the collaboration happening at that state level to, to drive the market more broadly. Um, I want to switch to get a little bit of the uh, insight on the building sector, uh, certainly related to the electrification movement in the transportation sector, but very different in its uh, focus and what has to happen, um, moving our building stock away from fossil fuels used for heating and cooking and towards the electric grid, which is increasingly clean. So Mike, uh, tell us more about your work with Rock Mountain Institute and the organization's objectives for building electrification. Absolutely. So here at RMI, our mission is to transform global energy use to create a clean, prosperous, and secure low carbon future. And yeah, increasingly for us, that means shifting from fossil fuels towards efficiency and renewable energy. And that includes the building sector. So, you know, we know that in our homes and the businesses where we work and shop and eat, that the majority of those across this country uh, burn gas or oil or propane for cooking or heating and that that adds up to a significant amount of carbon emissions and air pollution. And so our vision is that every building in this country can be zero emissions and that we can, we can transition this building stock and not need those fossil fuels anymore. So we're working with coalitions of advocates in different states all around the country. We're working with state governments and local governments that recognize the opportunity 
for a clean building sector and adopting new technology like heat pumps or induction stoves that allow us to power our buildings with that renewable energy and, uh, and ditch the fossil fuels. And so we're seeing um, a lot of momentum in this. It's, we're a few years behind the electric vehicle transition in some, in some ways. Many parts of this country still, uh, we see that these technologies are new. There's familiarity is very low, especially in the northern parts of the country with the newer technologies. Um, but they're increasingly capable of meeting all the needs that gas and oil and propane are currently providing, but without the emissions. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, from my own observation, it's a relatively new concept. Uh, for so many years, the message was really, you know, buy the most efficient natural gas uh, or propane or heating oil appliance or heating equipment that you can get on the market. Um, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, think about an electric alternative. And now clearly the message is, the electric alternative is really the only viable option, including my own utility. I was on the website the other day. They no longer offer incentives for um, sort of hybrid HVAC systems that use natural gas. They're only offering incentives for heat pumps. So definitely the trend is taking hold. Uh, curious if you can elaborate on which states in particular are really leading on the building electrification front. Yeah, so this is really a regional story around the country, and it looks so different from place to place. On the one hand, we've got the southeastern part of this country where heat pumps have been part of the market for years, even before any imperative for climate action, and, and continue to be a dominant technology. The mild climate really makes it uh, almost an obvious choice to use these electric heat pumps products for heating uh, to the point where, you know, these days, if you look at apartment buildings that are being constructed across the Southeast, 97% of them are relying on electricity as their heating source. And, and there's only a small sliver using gas. And so heat pumps are becoming the dominant technology there just based on their performance, their efficiency uh, without any policy drivers. And then if we look at other parts of the country, the New England states have been working to develop markets for heat pumps for six or seven years now. Those states have historically relied on oil for heating and oil is dirty. It's relatively expensive. It's not particularly popular. And so they've had an incentive to be some of the first movers in developing markets for these new heat pumps that can operate efficiently, even in those cold New England climates. And they've had good success. States like Maine and Vermont with very cold climates are leaders in deploying these, these efficient uh, cold climate heat pumps. And on the other hand, you've got states like California, which are trying to catch up fast and have made climate action a priority. And so we see cities leading the way in many, in many ways in California. Uh, Berkeley was the first city to commit to not constructing new buildings with fossil fuels anymore and relying on clean electricity. 
And almost 40 California cities have followed suit now. Most recently, San Francisco, which just this week made the commitment that all new buildings in San Francisco would rely on electricity rather than gas for their heating. And, and even across the middle swath of the country, we're seeing a lot of states and cities realizing that this needs to be an important part of their climate plans. So even here in Colorado, where the state has just published the greenhouse gas roadmap, we see uh, the numbers. They, they ran the math and determined that they really need to eliminate gas, uh, become a zero carbon building sector, and dramatically scale up these new technologies like heat pumps to address their climate change goals. Yeah, great. And, and certainly the local governments have, uh, not just in California, but across the country, have really proven that they may be small, but they are mighty and that they are willing to take the important steps to to set forth um, standards and codes that maybe the state and or federal government uh, aren't willing to do yet. Uh, but that's really put in motion some some exciting trends. Uh, Mike, you and uh, one of your colleagues authored a report, Regulatory Solutions for Building Decarbonization, and the focus of that report was really uh, at the regulatory, the utility regulatory audiences across the country. Every state has one. Rose used to be one. Um, with the uh, idea of putting front and center some of the core issues and recommendations for them as they grapple with um, particularly electrification in the building sector, which touches both electric uh, utilities and natural gas utilities. There was a lot in that report. It was very uh, comprehensive. So I'm wondering if you can just provide maybe some of the top recommendations uh, from that report. Yeah, sure. Let me first make a comment about why we wanted to write a report uh, addressing utility regulators. One is that this transformation really does require going into buildings, going into people's homes and give, helping them make these upgrades. And when we think about programs to help people upgrade their homes, we naturally think about utilities who have been offering efficiency programs for years or decades. And so this can be a critical lever in helping us achieve this goal. But secondly is that these regulators oversee uh, systems in every state that deliver fossil fuels right up to your house, uh, which is the gas distribution system and the gas utilities that operate it. And as more states are committed to becoming carbon neutral or getting these 80 or 90% greenhouse gas reductions, there is a realization that we have to deal with the fact that each of these states regulates a fossil fuel distribution system. And so some of our top uh, recommendations. First is just recognizing that utility regulators are, uh, are a part of their state government's ability to pursue their climate policies. And historically, we think of utility regulation as purely economic and just, just focused on costs and reliability. But now we have new social goals involved. And so recognizing um, the utility regulator's role in meeting state climate policy. And second, 
uh, would be to build a market for new technologies. So while maybe in the Southeast, heat pumps are a well-established technology in the upper Midwest, in New York, in California, in Colorado, they, they are not yet. There's pretty low awareness of this technology and these utility programs can be an important path to get these deployed, to start building the supply chains and local capabilities to do so. And the regulators can address that through these programs. And then third would really be to question the investments in the gas system. So gas utilities around this country 10 years ago spent about five or $6 billion a year on these distribution systems. And now they spend between 15 and 20 billion. So these costs are going way up, uh, mostly in the name of reliability and safety, which are, which are important goals. But we all, and utility regulators in particular, really need to question, is that a good investment? Are we investing in a safe infrastructure, but maybe infrastructure that doesn't need to be there in the future? Is it possible that instead of spending $15 billion a year to make the infrastructure safer, we could spend the same or less to move people off of it altogether and decommission some of that infrastructure? And so we, we're encouraging regulators to really question those investments and whether those are in the best interest of the, of the customers who are going to be on the hook to pay those investments back. Well, very, very timely issues and, and I think a really important contribution uh, to the space that report was. Uh, Rose, I would love to get your response to that in, in terms of being a former regulator and some of the issues that came across your desk uh, when you were having to make decisions that, that impacted both natural gas and electric utilities in terms of what Mike just shared. Well, I, I, first I want to say uh, how much I appreciate the work that both Mike and Sue are uh, undertaking in the field, because I think uh, those are contributions that uh, fundamentally will help us determine our, our future and provide uh, kind of a baseline for how um, decision makers, both regulators and 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 legislators, will will make decisions going forward. So you know, let me acknowledge that it's been a while since I sat in uh, the seat of a, a regulator. But I can, you know, you it's it's sort of like riding a bike; you never forget <laughs> the challenges because it's constantly an attempt to balance a set of interests, uh, a series of stakeholders, and uh, what I will describe as an increasingly antiquated uh, formula for achieving some of those goals. So I think uh, uh, utility regulators struggle with uh, issues around uh, the infrastructure that uh, Mike referenced, which is uh, the investment that, as an example, a gas utility uh, makes and, and has made over time, who's paid for that, and how, as we move away from it, we look at uh, the importance of, of uh, uh, sort of quantifying the best way to move away from those, those investments and acknowledging that they contribute more significantly to the negative aspects of, of climate and, um, and carbon. And so I think, um, you know, a regulatory environment is about uh, compliance, it's about planning, 
it uh, digs deeply into the economics of a, uh, uh, a circumstance. And uh, so I, I think as we try to balance the requirements that we see local governments looking at, uh, state governments uh, demanding, I think utility commissioners are under you know, tremendous pressure. But I also think that many of them view it as an opportunity. And it gives them a certain amount of flexibility to think a little differently, albeit through, you know, kind of a traditional framework, but they can think a little differently about how to address larger policy issues. So I think they are hungry for the examples that Sue and Mike and their organizations are focused on and how they would fit into uh, the equation as they look to uh, the future. And I'd be very interested in their thoughts on where they see, you know, the real struggles in the regulatory arena. But I think those are sort of the, the, the key issues that the uh, traditional utility regulators dealing with. It's just a function of balance and working through um, a longstanding set of parameters that doesn't always give them the ability to be as uh, progressive or as um, thoughtful as we, we would like for them to be. Absolutely. I, it just occurred to me as you were talking that uh, maybe an analogy for those less familiar with the regulatory space is, you know, being a regulator is kind of like having 12 children and they're all coming to you with uh, different requests, different problems, different issues, needs. And your job as the parent is to basically appease them all in some form or fashion, but not everyone's going to get exactly what they're asking for or what they need. So. <laughs> and you have limited resources because yeah. you have 12 of them. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, Sue, I'm curious, you know, in the transportation world and knowing that that space touches various regulatory agencies, not limited to the utility commissions that we're talking about, what are some of the biggest regulatory hurdles you're seeing and trying to counter with the work you're doing? Sure. Um, and if I could just back up and say, it's, um, I know we spoke a lot about California, or I did. There are states across the country, um, literally every single state is is uh, doing something on, on this topic, um, some more than others. But I, I did want to uh, make sure that was clear. We're working with a number of them um, that are really making progress. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, there are challenges. Um, there's a challenge of, um, you know, uh, continuing to provide incentives, particularly um, as states um, and, and um, everyone, you know, at, at the federal level as well are, are facing um, still economic hardships. Um, we know that incentives um, are still needed to address some of those first cost um, barriers, even, even though the total cost of ownership is coming down. So that's a challenge. And um, that does play out um, in the PUCs um, and um, specifically around the question of, um, you know, how to spread those costs across consumers. Um, I will point to um, an increasing number of studies that show how um, support for um, investments in, um, in charging infrastructure uh, in particular can really, you know, uh, be spread. Those benefits are spread across the network um, and, and therefore benefit all all consumers, all customers. Um, so I think that's a really important um, question to look at and, and, and something that certainly is, 
is a challenge and has been a challenge. Um, but I think one that we can, you know, we can push through, um, and, uh, maybe going alongside that, um, uh, there's a, there's some broader questions around, um, transportation revenue. Uh, EVs have, um, kind of, um, found themselves in the middle of that. They are not at all, um, the, uh, the source of that. We know that, um, increasing efficiency of vehicles, which is fantastic, um, have, uh, had, has meant that we've had, you know, uh, fewer dollars, uh, in real terms to, to invest in, in roads and transit and other things that are important. Um, to keep transportation uh, moving and functioning and, and having good mobility. Um, so EVs have, have um, been in the middle of that um, as more and more states look to um, uh, add EV registration fees um, to offset um, offset that um, that deficit. Um, so that's a bit of a challenge, um, particularly where states are, are looking to go beyond what, what folks might consider uh, equivalent um, equivalent charge. So where the EV um, owner may already be paying what they might have been otherwise um, in gas taxes had they owned a, a, a gas-powered vehicle and, and sort of pushing beyond that um, uh, uh, is is where we're going to you know see some additional challenges and and that's a bigger picture question that um, you know has has uh, been out there for several years, many years, and, and it's really about the whole system. But I think there's some innovative approaches to be looked at there as well. Um, and, and just keeping in mind that, um, you know, we're still trying to, to grow this industry and grow, grow support for it. So, um, we know that there's challenges there and, um, you know, it's just hard to, hard to make a change. Um, and, um, thinking about the, the different ways that we sell vehicles, uh, that's another area that we've worked a lot in. Um, um, we've been helping states, um, promote, um, what's known as direct, uh, sales access. Um, Colorado was the most recent state to adopt this. Um, it's the notion that um, uh, consumers don't always have access to uh, EVs when they want to go out and, and buy them. And um, uh, Colorado and an increasing number of other states are uh, before them and, and subsequently been looking at um, how do we uh, allow uh, at least EV-only manufacturers, the Teslas and the Rivians and, and so forth that are, are coming forward, um, to be able to um, sell direct to, to consumers um, uh, alongside whatever sales might happen um, at a dealership from from one of the legacy um, manufacturers. Um, so that's important to be able to get, you know, get access um, for those um, uh, consumers who want to move that. And, and you know, otherwise, uh, you know, we, we know that they drive many states over and around to, to try to get the vehicles that they want. So just opening the market up um, is another another barrier um, that um, we, we're working on as well. Well, I would say you've got your work cut out for you with, with that laundry list, but they're all super important issues. And I know a, a number of groups in, in addition to yours are trying to tackle these. Y- you know, you've all mentioned the consumer and of course front and center in the electrification movement in both buildings and transportation are the people that are going to be uh, adopting the technologies, trading in their cars, swapping out their uh, HVAC systems or their stoves. And, you know, they're, I think, uh, gradually getting educated around these opportunities and, and ser- starting to see more uh, uptake, which certainly helps move the dial. Um, but I'd love to get your thoughts, all of you, on how we can really ensure that this movement stays consumer-centric and that consumers across all incomes 
are given an equitable path to electrify their lives, that this does not just remain not remain on the margins and, and available only to the wealthier portions of society. And I'll allow, I'll allow any of you to jump in on this very easy question that I've asked. <laughs> yeah, maybe the, the, the little bit of silence you hear is because there is a, a recognition of just how challenging uh, this is. Uh, not so challenging, though, that we can't find a way to uh, collaborate around uh, an approach. I mean, the entire environmental justice conversation has evolved, I think, and I'd be willing to say that, you know, as a result of some of the activities uh, and the the voices that we heard over the summer, you know, there's been a bit of a, a, a reckoning uh, as a reality of, of the settles in. And now I think there's a recognition that there needs to be um, a broader effort to both identify uh, the need to figure out what we've seen as uh, encroaching inequalities and then think about it more from the standpoint of, of equity. And that is by bringing into the conversation those who are impacted. I think Sue mentioned the challenge of, of transportation, the ability of 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 certain communities to be mobile, the importance of mobility when it comes to their ability to achieve uh, their economic um, stability. All of these things, I think, factor into uh, the need to make sure that as we develop these policies and uh, look to solutions, we do so with an eye toward ensuring that everyone will benefit uh, from the efforts that we're that we're undertaking. So I mean that's sort of the you know the foundational framework from from my perspective. Uh, will affordability be uh, built into the conversation? Will accessibility be built into the conversation? And more importantly, where will the accountability be? So I mean I think I'll leave it there and maybe Mike and and Sue have some other thoughts. But it, you know, no one is saying that it's going to be easy, but it needs to be a part of the equation. Absolutely. I like that. Uh, affordability, accessibility, and accountability. Mike or Sue? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to build on that. I mean, when we're talking about electrifying our buildings, we're talking about, talking about housing, we're talking about the places people live, and there are plenty of challenges already that require solutions and housing affordability and energy burden and the cost of, of utility bills. And a movement to electrify buildings is not going to be equitable by accident. It's, it, has to be, it has to be deliberate. And we are seeing uh, examples of that that puts low-income customers at the forefront of this transition and are seeking to make sure they're not left behind. There's a lot of there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of solutions still to be developed. But we see new programs, whether it's in California where the state is devoting a majority of the market development funding to low-income customers and disadvantaged communities, all the way to New York City, where where NYCHA, the country's largest public housing authority, 
has just made a commitment to electrify all of its buildings and ensure that its residents can, can benefit. But the other piece of this I wanna emphasize is that an equitable path is not only about cost, it is also about health and health is not, health outcomes are not equitable in this country today. When we talk about buildings, we spend most of our time indoors, lately mostly in our homes. And that's a place where we burn fossil fuels indoors. You know, the only example that I can think of where we're burning a fossil fuel inside our living space is that gas stove. And usually we're not providing any ventilation from that. Even people who have ventilation hoods usually don't use them. And there, there's pollution from burning that gas inside the kitchen. And there's real consequences of that. And we've seen from research that children living in a home with a gas stove are 42% more likely to experience asthma symptoms than children living in a home with an electric stove. And, and we have reason to believe these impacts are worse in, in lower income and minority communities for a few reasons, partially because it, there's often more people living in smaller spaces. We know that um, older buildings and especially older urban buildings are less likely to have adequate ventilation and that there's a higher use of, of the gas stove or the gas oven for supplemental heat in low-income households. And so all of these are contributing to inequitable house health incomes today and you know, create a greater opportunity for this electrification movement to, to, build, uh, to build better outcomes for people's health. Absolutely. Sue, any thoughts from you on the yeah. need for equity in this conversation? Yeah, no, I'll just kind of add, add to that a little bit. Um, I, I think what Rose said um, really resonated about uh, needing to have um, uh, voices in the room to speak to um, the equity concerns and, and the and considerations and um, the need for those you know tables to be set from the get-go um, so that it's not an afterthought. Uh, and I think we're I think we're hearing that we're seeing that certainly been hearing that and seeing that um, you know at the state level and, and I think we'll see that increasingly at the federal level as well sorry state and local level I should say um, certainly we see that in our work um, I don't know that we have all the answers yet but as Rose said I think we're, we will get there and, and we will get there together um, so that's you know I think that's the right attitude to have uh, and then I think there are some you know important policy considerations that we've seen um, many states tackle. Um, Mike mentioned, you know, kind of the deliberateness of of how incentives or programs might be structured. Um, you know, putting putting in place um, um, deliberate measures to make sure that low income or disadvantaged communities, um, you know, have um, um, have access and direct access to some portion of incentives. Um, thinking about, um, you know, just very specifically, um, um, if a state's going to put in place a um, vehicle purchase incentive. Can they extend that to use vehicles? Because that's going to broaden the market to um, more low-income community members. Um, and then I'd say, um, you know, just thinking about in the terms of electrification, um, you know, not everyone's necessarily going to be able to afford or wants to drive a vehicle. So let's make sure um, transit, school buses, and, and back to freight um, uh, can all be, you know, moving towards electrification as well. Because you know, uh, that that is where. 
um, the benefits in terms of um, public health are really going to be gained as well. So I think there, you know, there's a new awareness out there. I think it's going to be hard work, um, but um, it starts by just making sure uh, folks are at the table. Absolutely. Well, we are winding down our time, but I do have just a couple more questions. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not ask the question about what to expect from the new Biden-Harris administration and new Congress on the uh, electrification front. I know there's a lot of conversation happening around a number of topics, climate and energy, but curious if any of you have either hopes or insights as to what we might see in the next four years. Um, I can go ahead there. Uh, Actually, having this conversation on a daily, if not an hourly basis. Um, you asked the question about uh, the new Biden administration and the new Congress, and I think it's really important to acknowledge um, those are going to move uh, potentially in two different directions. Um, we still very much um, uh, will have a divided government, um, you know, even pending the outcome of the Georgia, uh, the two Senate seats up there. But um, I think overall, we're going to have more stability and civility, um, and that bodes well for any policymaking process. So I think that's uh, really positive. In terms of transportation electrification, we've already seen Biden signal some really important um, things around rejoining the Paris Accord, around um, um, interest in investing in electric vehicle charging infrastructure, supporting extension of tax credits um, uh, and rebates for vehicle purchases. Um, also, um, doing that in, in conjunction with um, equity concerns. And, um, I, you know, I think could go down the list, but I think that there's a real interest there. Um, it, it will be interesting to see. I guess what we're looking for is will this be moved through regulatory efforts, um, executive orders, um, you know, how much can be done legislatively um, to, the, to the point of Congress, um, and then, you know, what, what might end up in the courts um, and, and conceivably in the Supreme Court. So we are hearing of interest in, in moving forward in um, on a zero emission vehicle um, uh, mandate for, for the country um, and um, uh, increasing greenhouse gas emission rules for, for transportation for vehicles. Um, looking, I think, importantly at electrifying government fleets, huge opportunity there from the Postal Service on down. Um, they have the largest fleet and then... Um, uh, uh, lots of opportunities, cost-effective opportunities there as well. So um, I, I think there's a lot that um, the administration can move forward in its own way and um, optimistic that there's some um, there's some bipartisan approaches that could move forward um, uh, in, the, in Congress um, and, and hopefully get some, some, importantly, get some money flowing into um, um, the states on this. Great. Thanks. That's, yeah, very optimistic outlook and good stuff to keep an eye out for. Mike, curious if you're seeing anything as well. Sure. Well, Biden's clean energy plan proposes to do quite a lot in the building sector. He's he's proposed to upgrade uh, millions of commercial and residential buildings and also to help support uh, building code upgrades in states and cities all around the country to both uh, establish new performance standards for existing buildings and new efficient and uh, zero emission standards for newly constructed buildings. Um, but another part, you know, whenever Joe Biden talks about climate, he likes to talk about jobs. 
and how the two are so inextricably linked. And I think that weatherizing buildings and upgrading appliances and homes all around the country is a critical part of any stimulus package. And I know that the Biden administration is uh, prioritizing that in their plans and, and hope to see that as well, because that is a, a job driver uh, for sure to do all that work in millions of buildings. And then just like in the, the government fleets, um, the U.S. government is the largest building owner in this country, and we could see uh, big efforts to upgrade federally owned buildings in every state of this country and uh, lead by example and help develop those markets for the new technologies in states where they haven't developed yet. So we're hoping to see quite a bit whether or not uh, the Senate goes goes either direction. Absolutely. And a really good reminder, um, including the fact that taxpayers pay for the energy bills in all those buildings. So we have a, I would say, a strong motivation for them to pursue the most efficient electric opportunities uh, near term and long term. Rose, anything from you that you're seeing on the Biden-Harris horizon? Well, I think uh, Sue and Mike covered, um, and I think in a very um, good way, uh, the importance of what we're seeing out of the, the Biden plan and also um, um, outlined some of the challenges associated with the uh, the congressional uh, outcomes. But that said, you know, I am very hopeful. Uh, I think, as Mike indicated, the plan is full of, um, of proposals that will support electrification. But I like to, without being too political, point to the fact that uh, one of the things that I, I think helped uh, the Biden uh, campaign and now moving into administration uh, understand and appreciate the importance of some of these factors was a, a group of folks that came together organically to become, you know, clean energy for Biden, representing, you know, 42 states and 10,000 people. I was so excited to see the wide range of individuals supporting it, organizations, um, leaders in the space, I think it is a clear indication that this is an area of, of priority, something that, that, that the administration needs to lean into. And based on what I've seen in the plan, which is you know just a starting point, I believe that we will see uh, some significant attention paid to these issues uh, going forward. So I'm very excited to see what comes out of it and happy to uh, be a part of a, of a larger movement that understands and appreciates the, the importance of electrification as we address our larger climate challenges. Absolutely. Here, here. And here, here's to a renewed sense of optimism uh, as well as greater collaboration. Uh, so my last question for you all, I want to bring it down to the ground level and, and ask you what one thing you are doing or planning to do to electrify and or decarbonize your life in your day-to-day. -day. And Mike, I'll start with you. Thanks, Sarah. Well, I've, I've already electrified my house and it is, it's great over here. The grass is greener. <laughs> you all should come join me. Um, but uh, in addition to that, I, I am looking forward to, uh, you know, spreading the word in my own community and advocating with our local government to 
initiate uh, uh, support a similar process for for my neighbors and residents in my own town and um, hope that we'll see more progress in that direction soon. Wonderful. Sue, how about you? Well, um, I uh, am a proud e-bike, electric bike rider and transit bus rider, um, but I am going to make the leap. I've got a a reservation in for the new VW ID4, so that'll be my first uh, light-duty vehicle, so I'm excited for that. Wonderful. And Rose, how about you? Well, like like Mike, um, I'm I'm working uh, on the local level to continue to electrify my home. I have a pretty significant solar installation. But right now, uh, with a a son in graduate school, we're looking to uh, look at our next vehicle as an electric vehicle, and he's beginning to work through the plans of of coming up with something that we think will be uh, both a good investment and something that will demonstrate our our family's commitment to, to our clean future. Wonderful. Well, I myself am uh, looking at induction stoves, and perhaps Santa Claus can fit one of those down my chimney uh, this year. (laughs) Um, Well, I can say that this has been one of the best podcasts I have done, and I have done a lot, and that is not to diminish the value of the others I have done, but you guys have been just stellar guests, and I really applaud all the work that you do in all of your spheres uh, I'm, I'm always heartened by the community of smart, committed, passionate people working on these tough issues. So thank you all so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for starting this podcast. And I look forward to subscribing. Absolutely. And thank you for uh, listening today. Um, for those of you wanting more information about the show and our guests, you can find that information at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, with the Audio Inn in Salt Lake City. And, of course, a special thanks to the listeners and subscribers. Thanks for tuning in to the inaugural episode of Electrify This. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do subscribe, follow, and give us a review wherever you find your podcasts. And I am your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to Electrify This. Electrify This.